So thank you, Julia, for reading and uh, much appreciated. It's a long chapter, but it's one that I felt was right to read because it contains um, a lot of what we need to uh, just look at and consider here um, this evening. It's a pivotal chapter that we have presented to us. Uh, it's very much a chapter which we see some firsts taking place as the Lord Jesus is speaking, and he speaks a great deal uh, here in chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel. Here in chapter 16 is the first time that our Lord Jesus mentions the church. Uh, we see that in verse 18. So he talks about the church which is uh, being put uh, and coming together and being presented. In verse 18 he says, And I also pray for you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We also see that in verse 21, it's the very first time that our Lord openly speaks of uh, going to Jerusalem, where the events leading up to the uh, crucifixion of our Lord were to take place. And he says, from this time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things for the elders and, from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. <clears throat> so we can see that it is a chapter which talks about change, a chapter in which Jesus explains that there are different things that are taking place. Now, of course, the disciples were struggling with a lot of this, and uh, we see very clearly that Peter says, no, this is never going to happen. And, uh, and Peter, of course, was talking from man's perspective. I mean, none of us like suffering. None of us like to see a friend suffer. And he's saying, you know, this isn't going to happen, Lord. But of course, he was talking from his own perspective. Jesus was preparing the disciples for the arrest, crucifixion, and of course, the resurrection. But we discovered that the scripture here says, and our Lord is saying, but the disciples were slow to understand, partly because they didn't want to understand. And there is a point that naturally speaking, even in our own lives, we can get to a time when we just don't want to understand. Uh, we can become comfortable in the way that we have been brought up, perhaps, the way that we think. Uh, we can like not being challenged in our Christian lives. We can like just plodding along, taking it easy, going at our own pace, doing what we want to do. And so naturally speaking, we don't like to always uh, perhaps feel uh, being pushed or being led in a certain direction. And we have to be careful of this. But we also see from this chapter that the subject of faith is very strongly presented. Uh, the Bible defines faith in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And of course the Bible has a great deal to say about faith. Well it would do, wouldn't it? And how important faith is. In fact, it is so important that without faith, we have no place with God. And it is impossible to please God, so Hebrews 11 and verse 6 explains. According to the Bible, faith is belief in the one true God without actually seeing him. And here in Matthew 16... We begin by seeing people who had no faith, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, asked him, 
if he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, when it is evening. And we know what that means because it's true today. Um, we say, red sun in the morning, sailor's warning. Red sun at night, uh, sailor's delight, I guess. And shepherds, of course. Red sun in the morning, shepherd's warning. Red sun at night, shepherd's delight. And that just shows how the natural world works and how it functions. And of course, Jesus is using that to explain to uh, these people who have come along, the Sadducees and the Pharisees who have come along to try and test him. And he says, look, you're not interested in this. Why in the world are you interested in signs? They didn't want to actually hear anything that Jesus had to say. The truth is the matter of the matter is that they had come to silence Jesus. They certainly had no faith in him. Uh, they were, of course, were two opposing parties. They were two opposing parties that hated Jesus, and it was the hatred of Jesus that brought the two groups together. The Pharisees, of course, were those who were very legalistic. Uh, they liked to make sure that they knew what was going on. They were traditionalists, and they liked to make sure that everybody was behaving themselves, everybody was doing everything right in the right way. Everybody was religious, and that's what their uh, uh, intention was. And the Sadducees, of course, they were quite liberal in comparison. The two naturally were at odds to each other. Uh, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, uh, the resurrection after death. And so we see that uh, coming through uh, when we read in Acts 23. And if you've got time, look at those verses 6 to 10 because the Apostle Paul talks about the Pharisees. He talks about the Sadducees and he talks about the differences between them. And it's a very useful piece of scripture to be able to understand this. But the opposition to Jesus drew the two groups together. And we see this, don't we, even in our own society today. That the one thing that will draw people together is when there is somebody else, when there is another group of people to try and cause a problem with. And we've got to be careful of this because we recognize that there is a sense in which different groups, even with our own society here in Canada, can be united against the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to be aware of this. This was, in fact, the fourth time that the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, had come asking Jesus for a sign. They had not believed on the other three occasions, so why do you think or why did they think that if Jesus was to bring a sign to them that they would change their minds on this occasion? There is no common sense that would suggest that that was the case. You see, the thing that we have to remember about miracles is that whilst we rejoice to see miracles... Miracles in and of themselves do not and cannot save us. We can see God at work. We hear about God at work in various places in the world. And we've been talking about revival that has been taking place. And we rejoice when we hear of revival taking place. And there are many places in the world where there have been pockets of revival that have been taking place. And we praise God and we look for that exact same thing to take place here. But what I want to say to us and what we see from this scripture this evening is that if you're out looking for a miracle to convince you that God is real, you're barking up the wrong tree. It's not what is important to us. What is important to us is that we are convicted of our sin, that we understand our need of salvation, and that we call to God for that salvation. 
Miracles do not convince people of their sin. Jesus had performed many, many miracles, but not all the people who had seen the miracles had in fact believed or come to faith in him. In fact, in John 2, verses 23 to 25, we read these words, which say, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs and the miracles, the wonderful things that were taking place, which Jesus had done. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in a man. In other words, there were people that were saying, I believe in Jesus because I've seen the miracles. But Jesus knew that their belief was in the miracle, not him. And so we have to be very, very cautious, very careful to discern what is right, to discern what it is that we are seeing. They saw the miracles, but they didn't believe. And our Lord knew that the men coming to him that day were coming with the wrong motive. What's your motive for coming to church tonight? Have you asked yourself carefully what it is? Are you hoping to see, uh, perhaps you're waiting for something amazing to happen in your life, and then you're going to say, I'm going to believe. Instead of saying, Lord, I want to believe. I want to trust in you now. I need you in my life. I'm not waiting to see a miracle around me. What I want is a miracle in me. What I want is a transformation in my heart and my life that a heart that cannot see God, that cannot understand the things of God is transformed to a heart that is strangely warmed by the presence of God and is able to see him. Yes, to see ourselves, to see our sin, but to be able to look up and to see God at work within us. And that's the miracle that we want to see within us. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were religious. So don't get caught up thinking to yourself that religion will do it. Religion has never saved anybody. It is only faith in God through his Son that saves us from our sin. So our Lord talked about the weather. Now they say it's the English that talk about the weather when there's nothing else to talk about. And it is true. We have a lot of weather to talk about. It's amazing how in... In uh, my part of England, which has the, the full brunt of the Atlantic Ocean, the weather can change. We can have all sorts in one day. And so we like to talk about the weather. We like to talk about these things. But our Lord is speaking here very clearly because he's using the natural world around to say, look, you see it all. What more do you want to see in the way of miracles that take place? Because the problem was they had no faith. And friends, if you're here this evening and you have no faith, then you'll walk out the same way that you came in. It'll mean nothing to you. The Pharisees and the Sadducees could not believe because they did not want to believe. They'd got everything worked out. <laughs> the people were under the thumb. 
The people knew their position in life. They were the ones that were comfortable. They were the ones that were well off. Everything was sorted. Religion does that. It brings together a routine and a rigmarole. And as long as things are followed through, everything is, is okay. John 12:37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. And of course, their demand for a sign and... If that's what we're doing, and I have met people in this town who are saying, I am waiting until God does something like he did to the Apostle Paul as he's going down that road, the Damascus Road. And I'm waiting for that miracle to happen. And I'm going to sit in my seat. I'm going to come to church each week. I'm going to do whatever it is that I need to do. But that's what I want to see happen in my life. But don't we understand that that tells us a great deal about our heart? It reveals the sad condition of our heart. And Jesus used some pretty strong words to describe this group of people, didn't he? He called them a wicked and adulterous generation. He wasn't accusing them of being guilty of physical adultery, but he was accusing them of being guilty of spiritual adultery. They were not true to God. They said they were. They made sure everybody else knew who they were, that everybody else followed the rules and the commandments that had been brought down, or rather the, 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 the rules of the Jewish um, um, uh, rabbis had added. They had allowed the law and the traditions and legalism to take the place of God. And friends, graciously, I warn you that it's easy for us to do this. You see, it's very easy to try and maintain the understanding that we're doing it right. But it's in our strength. It's how we want it to be. It's not what God would have. We have to be careful. It's so easily done. We replace God in our lives with rules. If I'm seen to obey, I'll be acceptable to God. Now, Jesus moved on from talking about the weather to talking about Jonah. Now, why would he talk about Jonah? You know, Jonah's the guy that had a spot of bother with a big fish. There was a big storm in the boat, and uh, the water's coming in over the side. And things are looking tricky, you know. The captain of the boat, the crew are sort of like throwing everything that they can do to shed weight to try and lift the boat up out of the water. And eventually they start to go, you know, they've tried everything they can, humanly speaking. That's a lesson for us, isn't it? And eventually they start to go around and say, right, one of us has caused a problem. One of us is causing this difficulty. And they say, you know, pray to your God, sort it out. And finally they get to Jonah, who happens to be asleep in the back, not entirely sure how that came about. And he says, it's me. And so they throw him overboard, the storm stops, and a big fish gobbles him up and then spits him out on the beach three days later. So why in the world would Jesus talk about this? What's the significance of Jesus talking about Jonah at this particular point? Very simply because Jonah was the sign of death, burial, and resurrection. And if you didn't come this morning, well, you've missed out on a great deal because that's exactly what he's talking about here because this is the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection. 
Because Jesus died for us, he was buried for us, and he was raised to life for us. But the amazing thing is, is that as we come by faith in him, we discover that we too die with him. And in the grave, we are buried with him. And then, of course, we're raised to newness of life in him. So there we have the gospel very clearly presented for us. And Jesus is presenting it here when he talks about Jonah. And friends, this was the sign that Peter preached at Pentecost. Remember Acts 2, 22 to 24. In fact, we can't really forget them in this verse if you come in the mornings because we have been uh, just about a year and we've managed to get to, uh, uh, to virtually the end of chapter 2 in Acts in our studies. They had no faith. Yes, they were religious. Never confuse religion with faith. In fact, they were more religious than they knew what to do with. But religion doesn't save us. Only faith in Jesus Christ saves us. Now in verses 5 to 12, we move on and we discover that our Lord talks to the disciples and he says, you are, you, you have little faith. So we've gone from no faith to little faith. And in this section, the disciples totally misunderstand what our Lord was saying to them. They had convinced themselves that Jesus was talking about physical bread. When what he was talking about was spiritual bread. And I'm going to suggest to you that not a lot has changed. Because we still seem more concerned about the physical bread in our lives than we are about the spiritual bread. You we're worried about, you know, what's God going to give to me physically, materially? What's he going to do for me? When the reality is, is that the bread we should be concerned about is the spiritual bread. And that's exactly what our Lord said to the disciples here. We're still caught up with the physical rather than the spiritual. We're still concerned about being hungry physically rather than being hungry spiritually. Is there anybody here who's hungry spiritually? I am. I want to know God more. I want to know his, his, his love for me more deeply. I want to understand everything that he's done for me. I want him to work in my heart and in my life. And so should we all. They just couldn't get the idea of bread out of their heads. And so Jesus in verse 8 turns to them and says, Oh, you, a little, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves? Because you have brought no bread. Surely you understand that I am not talking about physical bread. And then strangely, Jesus changes the emphasis just a little and he starts to talk about leaven and yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if they had remembered how Jesus had multiplied the bread on those two occasions when he fed thousands of people, they certainly would not have worried. You see, their little faith kept them from understanding his teaching and depending on his power to meet their needs. Now, in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20, Jesus talks to his disciples about something very precious. We've gone from no faith to little faith 
to saving faith. And in verse 13, Jesus turns to the disciples and he asks a question. He says, now, uh, on the face of it, you have, to have, yeah, and you have to say that it was a bold question. In fact, if anyone else were to ask the question, we would think them either crazy or absolutely arrogant. But Jesus turns to the disciples and he asks, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? But of course, this question was the very correct question for Jesus to ask. Why do I say that? Because a right confession of who Jesus is is absolutely basic to our salvation. Without an answer to that question, we're none the wiser. Romans 10 verse 9 explains it very clearly. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's imperative that we understand who Jesus is. So the question that is asked is the correct question. It's in fact the only question that could be asked. The question was right because it mattered who you thought Jesus was. It mattered who the disciples thought Jesus was. And friends, I want to say to you, it matters to you. Every one of you. It matters to me. It matters to all of us. who you think Jesus is? Because we can answer that question in lots of different ways. Some people will say, well, he was a good chap, wasn't he? Well, of course he was. He was perfect. He's a good chap to model my life on. Well, yes, of course he is. He was perfect, and therefore it's always good to look up to somebody. And there are many people in the world today who are quite happy to say, you know, Jesus was a good guy in history. What Jesus did was good. He helped people who were ill, people who were poor, people who were struggling in their lives. Jesus was a good man. But Peter got it right. He looks at the Lord Jesus and he says clearly and emphatically, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. This was radical. Because Jesus was putting himself equal with God. Now how did Peter know this? How was Peter able to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God? Well in verse 17, our Lord explains it. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Friends, God was at work in Peter's life. And it was God who worked in him that Peter is able to know Jesus. You see, it was not Peter's own investigation into who Jesus was that revealed this truth to him. Jesus himself says this very clearly. No, it was a gracious act of God. God had hidden these things from the proud Pharisees and from the Sadducees, and he revealed them to babes. He revealed them to the disciples. Now, this wasn't the first time that Peter had made a confession of faith, if you like. 
Back in John 6, 68 to 69, we read, But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So it's not the first time that he has said something very similar to this. But there's a difference between what Peter is saying here in chapter 16 and what had been said previously. So what are the differences? What are the differences about Peter's confession here in Matthew 16? Well, two things. Firstly, Jesus explicitly asked for this confession. And tonight, Jesus is explicitly asking you the same question. Who do you say I am? And you can come up with your ideas, the thoughts that you have. Or, like Peter, you can confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And because of that, your life can be changed. In fact, Peter's life was changed so much that Jesus starts talking about the church. And he starts talking about the fact that Peter was going to be instrumental in the beginning of the church. And then we move into the book of Acts and we get all excited because the Holy Spirit comes and Peter's heart and life, everything changes about him. Instead of being scared up in some upper room with the door locked, you know, he's got a table leg in his hand ready to club someone who comes in the door. Instead of that, he's standing up boldly preaching. And he's declaring the things of God. And the message that he preaches is the message that is being spoken of here. So firstly, Jesus explicitly asked for his confession. And secondly, Jesus accepted his confession. And he built on it to teach them new truths. Jesus knew that Peter could be led into new steps of deeper truth and deeper service. Now, having declared who he was, Jesus now declared his work for the two must go hand in hand. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to be raised from the dead. And Peter was beside himself when he heard this because he was still thinking in a human way. Today, the cross is an accepted symbol of love and sacrifice. Some of us may wear a cross, perhaps on a chain around our neck, or perhaps a little badge on your lapel. And that shows that the cross of Jesus is central to how we think and how we feel. That should be the reason why we would wear such a thing. And it is something which is good to do. Because it demonstrates what is central in the Christian life, which is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't wear crucifixes because Jesus is no longer on the cross. The cross that we have is empty because he's risen and he's not on the cross. Romans, of course, would never mention the cross in polite society. In fact, the Romans would not even crucify a Roman citizen. 
it was reserved for the enemy. And in closing, Jesus here in the last few verses of Matthew 16 presented to the disciples two approaches to life. And those two approaches are presented to us today. First one, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Christ, lose your life for his sake, forsake the world, keep your soul, share his reward and glory. That's option number one that is presented. And then there's the second option, live for yourself, ignore the cross, follow the world, save your life for your own sake, gain the world, Lose your soul, lose your reward, and lose the glory. Friends, to deny self doesn't mean to deny things. It means to give yourself wholly to Jesus Christ and to share in his shame and his death. To take up a cross doesn't mean to carry burdens or problems that we have. To take up the cross means to identify with Jesus in his rejection, in his shame, in his suffering, and in his death. So this evening we close. You need to ask the question, who do you say Jesus is? A good man? someone worth following or is he the Christ the son of the living God and if you answer that question that means the Holy Spirit is working in you because suddenly you've been able to see who Jesus is and what he really means to you? Have you got no faith? Are you like the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Are you out to try and test God? Have you got a small amount of faith that needs to grow? Or are you prepared to say that Jesus is the Son of the living God? And if you do that, you don't stand still. You're at the threshold of a new life as Peter began, how he sees the church grow and it spreads around the world and it continues to spread to this day because God built on Peter through his Holy Spirit. Repent of your sin. Place your trust in the Savior. Or are you going to walk out just like you did when you came in perhaps? You're living for self. You're only interested in what you can get. You're not interested in what Jesus has done for you. You're a brave person if that's what you want to do. But it's a mistake. Repent of your sin. Call to the Savior now. And nobody's been turned away who has done that. Jesus loves us. And he's asking for your confession. Do it.